This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It is Thursday, Friday Eve. This is the Sean Spicer Show. Sit back, relax, and we're going to get you on a glide path to the weekend. So we've got a great show headed your way, some great guests and discussions coming up. First, Steve Krakauer. He's the editor of Fourth Watch. He is a media watchdog that actually calls balls and strikes because nobody is doing it in this day and age. Steve actually has worked around. He's been at The Blaze. He's been at CNN. He knows who's doing their job and who isn't, and he's not afraid to call them out. Then we've got a panel coming up with Amber Athey, the Washington editor of The Spectator, and Hogan Gidley, President Trump's former White House deputy press secretary. is the press secretary on his campaign, and he is now the vice chair for election integrity at the America First Policy Institute. A lot going in in Washington right now. Impeachment, spending, the second debate. We have so much to get to and to break down. So... Let's get into it. All right, as I said, we've got a lot to cover today. Uh, We've got the panel discussion coming up. We're going to break down everything that's going on in Washington and in politics. Um, But before we get there, I want to talk, you know, if you've been watching all week, you know there's a lot of going on in the media, both in terms of changes. I talked to you about President Trump, some of the interviews that he has been doing, uh, as well as how the media is covering the impeachment. They keep saying there's no evidence. Um, CNN is going apoplectic about how to cover this stuff. As I mentioned, the White House sent out an email or a memo to all these news executives telling them how they must cover the impeachment. I'm thinking to myself, why, why didn't I try that? Well, because they would have laughed. They would have mocked it. It would have been news. But under this White House, that's called marching orders. Uh, there's no one better to break this down than Steve Krakauer. He's the author of a book called Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned His Principles, and Lost the People. I've listened to it. I've read it. I love this book. If you really want to understand the media, um, read Steve's book um, because he has worked at The Blaze and CNN and other places, and he can talk to you about what it's like inside the belly of the beast. Uh, what they cover, what they don't, why they make decisions. Anyway, he is currently the host of the Fourth Watch podcast and newsletter. If you go to Fourth Watch, because the fourth estate, the media. And he's also the executive producer of the Megyn Kelly podcast, uh, which uh, we will break into as well. I'm going to ask him about that interview that Megyn did with him. Also, later in the show, we've got this panel. uh, And I'm looking forward to breaking down everything with them about their take on impeachment, on spending, where things are headed, um, the second debate, RFK, why he's getting screwed. Um, should some of these Republicans be doing this stuff? Would they pay for X? I don't know. The Twitter, by the way, that's the new name. Uh, joining us will be Hogan Gidley. Uh, he is the former deputy press secretary in the White House during the Trump administration. He also was the president's um, press secretary on the campaign, and he is currently the vice chair for the Center of Election Integrity at the America First Policy Institute. And then Amber Athey is going to be part of that panel. She is the Washington editor of The Spectator. So we're going to get that uh, going in just a sec. But before I do, I do need to remind you, because we're heading into the weekend. 
A lot of people are going to be, what am I doing this weekend? You know what you can do? Catch up on the Sean Spicer Show. And the easiest way to do that is to subscribe. Go to YouTube, go to Rumble, um, go to Apple Podcasts. Every day, I'm obsessed with numbers and data. I can't help it. Plus, just who I am. So I've been watching that number climb every single day because of you, because you've shared it, you've told people about it, you've given us a five-star rating on an Apple. If you haven't done that, please do. Uh, it means a lot to the success of the show and our growth. So thank you for doing it. Please continue to do it. Uh, unlike TV, that's a lot of fairy dust and pixie dust. Uh, we actually have to show people that we're growing and what the numbers are. And because of you, we are. So thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Please continue to do that. So I want to kick today's show off with a great conversation uh, with Steve Krakauer. As I mentioned, he's an author. He's the host of Fourth Watch, which is a media watchdog that actually keeps an eye on the media, unlike a lot of these other guys that are just uh, shills from the media. Steve really calls balls and strikes, and he's the executive producer of The Megan Kelly Show. So it's my pleasure to bring in Steve Cracker. Steve, welcome to the show. Uh, a lot to break down in your world. I want to start with sort of my uh, obsession this week. I, I want to talk to you about the Meet the Press interview. Um, yeah. Because it's interesting. Both sides were not happy with Kristen Welker. I'm reading the CNN newsletter and it's like there is a, oh my a, God. a a brutal page of leftists that are like, uh, Welker's interview was a gross dereliction of journalistic duty. Welker failed the test. Welker's skills in an interview were no match, blah, blah, blah. But I, I sort of was intrigued by CNN's analysis, Oliver Darcy here, who says, unfortunately, Welker failed spectacularly. Um, but Welker lacked the necessary fever and apparent grasp of the subject material the massive platform requires to effectively counter Trump. It's And it's sure to have consequences for the storied Sunday public affairs show. So let's start with that. Will there be consequences for Meet the Press? And what do you think about their decision to have him and her handling of him? No, I, I mean, my gosh, Sean, I, I read that this week from Oliver Darcy. And I have to say, I, I'm a former colleague of Oliver Darcy's when we worked for The Blaze. By the way, yes, Oliver Darcy started a website called ExposingLeftists.com back when he was on the complete opposite side of the aisle. Then he worked for The Blaze and he worked for a couple other places. I mean, this guy, uh, he, I, I don't know Kristen Walker personally. I think she's a she's an okay journalist. I think if you ranked all the journalists that work at these mainstream corporate media institutions like NBC or ABC or CBS, she would be on the less overtly biased scale, in my opinion. Uh, and it makes her a massive a, a person to be attacked by by someone who has absolutely no journalistic integrity, like Oliver Darcy and so many in the press. So I I am not necessarily surprised if it was not a takedown interview by Kristen Welker, then they were surely 
going to be attacking her. And I think that's exactly what's happening. As you mentioned from the right, I think that some of what what she said, her pushback on issues like abortion, I think were more in the uh, leaning left category and and not necessarily being based in reality. But I, I don't think this is going to have any effect on Meet the Press. I, I think that Kristen Welker, frankly, might be uh, better for that seat than someone like Chuck Todd. I'm I, I don't think this will have any effect on her at all. I think most people in America do not share the opinions of Oliver. Darcy, my God. Uh, and that's a good thing. So here's what else he wrote that I thought was was particularly interesting. He said, if it's necessary to interview Trump, newsrooms need to approach the task differently than they would any other interview. Uh, he goes on to say, well, there's a temptation among the D.C. class to pretend that newsrooms still operate like the 1990s like era where Republicans and Democrats are treated as the opposite sides of the same coin. Doing so is a grave error. He goes on to say, when interviewing Trump, the goal cannot be to make news like one might attempt with a normal politician. The purpose of the interview must be to hold power to account. I don't wh- Why is it that he should be so different? Uh, so, I mean, it, it's, it, it's such a great encapsulation of literally everything wrong with the media today, that that is something that is being heralded in the CNN's vaunted newsletter that really a lot of people do read. I'm I, I'm a regular reader of it. It has a very large subscriber base. People take it seriously. Yeah. It's sad. And it is, it is really just exhibit A for why people don't trust the media anymore. Uh, and, and it's so counterproductive. I mean, listen, I I happen to disagree with Oliver Darcy on on Donald Trump and whether he's a threat to democracy and blah, blah, blah. Okay, whatever. I disagree on that. But even if you believe that, even if you're like Oliver, who believes that he's this massive threat to democracy, we must, you know, we must take him down by exposing this. You are going about it completely wrong if you say we should treat him differently as a journalistic subject. The point of if you want to really prove that that, that that's true, then show, don't tell. Do the journalistic work to make that point. Do, do your job better than you ever did before. Do, double down on your principles. Instead, they are he's advising people, and a lot of people believe this in the press, going in the opposite direction. No, now is the time the guardrails need to be off. We need to abandon our principles so that we can take this person down. That's going about it completely wrong, and it's so counterproductive. It is just the perfect encapsulation of what is wrong with the media today. It's funny because for a while, under Chris Litt, who was the former head of CNN, there was yeah. this move to get back to its roots. And yet I, I read the newsletters from Oliver. And he cites as a normal so- source, Media Matters for America, as if that's a credible source. It's the left wing, uh, you know, funded, Soros funded uh, attack of Fox. And yet they, he'll, he'll treat MSNBC as a normal thing and then say right wing Fox News and right wing right. Newsmax. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. But I, I want to continue with I, ironically with CNN, because I've talked about this a couple times on the show here. The White House put out this memo directing news organizations and saying on how to cover impeachment. And it said in the modern age, modern media environment where everyday lies and hucksters peddle disinformation and lies everywhere from Facebook to Fox, process stories that fail to unpack the illegitimacy of the claims on which House Republicans are basing all their actions only serve to generate confusion put false premises in people's feeds and obscure the truth. I have never, I've been doing this 30 years. I've never seen a White House send marching orders. I've sent them send talking points, our spin, here's our take. But the idea that they're telling them how to cover the story 
You know, I got chided at the podium a few times, probably more than a few yeah, times, for saying, that. you have no right to tell us how to do our job. And this is literally them telling the executives, here's how you must cover the impeachment inquiry. Yeah. I, on, on one hand, you have to kind of admire just the absolute brazenness of, yes. of this White House. Uh, the the I, I think we saw it with the Obama administration. People don't talk about it very much. They really... Were, were ones that that criminalized the act of journalism by using the Espionage Act, the Espionage Act. Now we hear about it with Trump. They were doing that back in, in the Obama era of, of criminalizing journalism, going against journalists and their sources. And that's continued with the Biden administration. Listen, a, a press that really cared about holding power to account, as Oliver Darcy likes to say, would get something like that and do one thing. They would hit delete. That is how you deal with something like that. But no, as uh, unfortunately for the state of the media, we saw those same, as you mentioned, kind of by, beyond talking points. I mean, this was a directives that was then how these journalistic outlets, places like NBC, reporters there that were putting these exact talking points out on social media as and they were sort of saying this is how the White House is spinning it, but they weren't doing any pushback. They weren't actually doing the work to fact check what is obvious partisan and political spin. So it's totally embarrassing, but it is really representative of, of where we are right now, because obviously if you were sending that or if Kayleigh McEnany was sending that, <laughs> they, we, they would be laughed at. They would be it, it would be absolutely a story about how dare the the administration try to to spin us this way and we will absolutely never do that no now it's just sort of they, they take it and and it just shows their their overall reluctance to go after this story and i think it's because of the original sin that they had on this story which is the laptop yeah. how how poorly they covered that in october 2020 yeah i know in your book you talk extensively about that um it's a it's a great read for anyone who's who's interested in delving further but okay round two name something that's not boring Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to, you, you mentioned the original sin and, and, we're now in this impeachment inquiry. Over yeah. and over again, host after host, uh, from Jonathan Carl to Kristen Welker to the folks at CNN, Abby Phillip this weekend, last weekend, they'll say there is no evidence. And I, I keep pointing to this great response that Nancy Mace had and, and uh, Jim Jordan's had it well, whether they'll list off the SARS forms, the, the calls, whatever. And I, I've, I've said to the audience here that you may not, find it convincing. You may not find it overwhelming, but it's evidence. And so it's amazing to me that the media has gone so far in on this talking point, no evidence. It's again, I, they, you can quarrel whether it's, it's uh, effective or yeah. persuasive, but it's evidence, correct? Absolutely. I, I think it's so interesting. You know, one of the things we've started to see, the New York Times has gone down this path, is going from no evidence to no hard evidence. <laughs> uh, because Look, we know circumstantial evidence. Anyone who's ever followed a trial, circumstantial evidence is is a key factor. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's actually more important to convincing juries of the guilt or innocence of someone is the circumstantial evidence. We have massive amounts of circumstantial evidence here. So 
the idea that there's no evidence is just simply false. Now, if you want to say, as you mentioned, oh, well, it's not convincing, there's no hard evidence connecting Joe Biden personally. Okay, we can quibble with that. But but obviously, there is evidence, and it's inconvenient evidence, but it is absolutely evidence. And, and we're starting to kind of see the goalposts moving even further from the press because they know it. It's, it's too obvious right now. We see poll after poll. The American people understand it too. The, the Democrats understand it now. The most of the Democrats in the country understand it. So th- it's just not going to to fly anymore to try to, to spin it that way. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, because I, I, I have been very outspoken about this, that at a certain point um, in, in a primary situation, which is different than a general, I don't think Republicans serve themselves well by going on programs like a Meet the Press, like a CNN, where there's not a lot of Republican voters to persuade, maybe get votes or whatever. What do you think? So my advice is if you're a Republican, you now have outlets that didn't exist five, six years ago, whether it's this show, The Blaze, uh, other shows on The First, The Daily Wire, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I I think that it is a fool's errand for Republicans to go on CNN, that they're only helping them with a, a credibility factor. What do you think of that? I kind of I, I see both sides of it, and I and I, I think that I I probably end up saying that there's there's value in both in doing both. I, I I think that you need to to build your arsenal from a from a media perspective that shows you are able to to reach an, an audience of the kind of voters you want to convince that you want to to vote for you, and then you want to build this resume of showing you kind of in the fire. You know how do you fight? How do you fight with these with these journalists who are so dishonest? I think that there's there's value to that too. I think about like Vivek Ramaswamy who went on with George Stephanopoulos and got bombarded by, for ten minutes with the most absurd questions. Literally every single question said the word Donald Trump. Yeah. Right? Every question for ten minutes, but he handled himself well. He he really was able to score some points. I think you know put George Stephanopoulos back on his heels a little bit. And I do think that there's some value to that. Let let that be a mark that you can then share on platforms like X or Facebook or Instagram, and 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 show yourself that you you can actually handle it and preview what you might be able to do in a general election when they really come with all the arrows at you. You know, it's interesting because I, I I read it was in your newsletter this week that I thought was so interesting. You're right. And and then I think who was Van Hollen or something was on after him. And, oh, Tim Kaine. Tim yeah. Kaine, you're right. You know, um, you know, you brought up X. I wasn't going to go here, but I have a question that I think is interesting as somebody who's been in the media. Uh, Elon Musk earlier this week said that he wants to charge all users. Um, I have to believe that there's a lot of people that are just going to say, I'm, I'm done. It, do you think that now X... Uh, is is going to be this have the same value about breaking news? I mean, we, we you talked about this in your book, the Acela Media basically having tunnel vision following Twitter and source. Is X going to evolve into something that might not be that platform anymore because he, so many people are probably going to leave if he charges everybody money? Yeah, I I, I think that it, it will not be that platform anymore. Where will if it really be? Goes where, where do they go? That? Is it just disparate? I, yeah, yeah, I do. I, I think that there is not going to be that one main gathering place, that digital water cooler anymore that Twitter really was. You know, as as we talk about, it's not representative of of the country. It's it is a small subset. It over indexes in places like New York and DC and and the media scene and also people who, that I would say are kind of political hobbyists. You know, people across the country that really eat this kind of stuff up. They they hang out there also, and and so there is absolutely value to it. 
But yes, if he starts charging everyone, frankly, I, I think just even the way he's gone about doing verification of, of journalists, yeah. it's driven some of them away from it. Uh, I, I find it very complicated, to be honest with you. I, I even tried to get verified the other day. I couldn't even figure it out. And I'm like, oh, I'll go back to it at some point. I, I, I think that there is some, some decision making going on that may be good for business, but are not really the long term make this the the town square where everyone has a voice type type thoughts that are going on with Elon. I hope he does not go through with that and it becomes a place for more voices. I, I agree because I'll tell you what, I, I don't want, I'm tired. I have too many places that you have to post now. And I feel like if you <laughs> right. lose, seriously, you got threads and Getter and Truth Social and, and it's like, just give me one place. And I'm like, right. I think this is going to do, before I let you go, I mentioned early, uh, beyond your great work at Fourth Watch, uh, you happen to be the, executive producer of Megyn Kelly. You guys had a big interview. What were your takeaways? Yeah, yeah, with with uh, with former President Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, it was, uh, I think that it was the kind of interview that had a little something for everyone. Uh, and and we, we saw that it was, it was fascinating to watch what of the 67 minute interview, which was really one of the longer interviews he's done recently, what got picked up in, in what capacities. There was, there was a, certainly some things that the DeSantis fans really ate up. There were some things that the MAGA fans really ate up. I, I think some of the parts were him talking about Melania, some of the reasons that he chose to to continue to, to run and not to just go and enjoy. We were in Bedminster, enjoy the golf club. Right. Um, why he actually believes that he needs to to go and do this for the country. And then there was there were some things that you know got played incessantly on MSNBC and CNN, largely having to do with the uh, the criminal trials that were ahead. So I, I think it's the kind of thing where he should do. Uh, I, I think he performed well. At the same time, there was a lot of grist for, for those who are looking for it. Um, but he excels when he's in a combative situation, I think. I, I, I think that actually shows a different side of him that he does not do as often as he certainly did in 2015 and 2016 when he was a regular on places like Don Lemon and Anderson Cooper and Morning Joe. Now he really he doesn't need to get there out there as much. He's up forty points in the primary, um, but I, I like it as someone who who is sort of a uh, an objective observer of the process. I think it's good. It's good for the public to see that. Okay, Steve Cracker, always appreciate your insight in the media. You know it better than anybody. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Sean. Always great talking to you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Enjoyed that conversation with Steve. Uh, but it's Thursday, and I love these panel discussions. Two great guests today. Hogan Gidley, as I mentioned earlier, was the deputy press secretary uh, during the Trump administration. He's now serving as a vice chair for election integrity at America First Policy Institutes, making sure that states are being held accountable and we don't see a lot of that mm, little shenanigan-y stuff that we saw last time in 2020. Hogan's on the case. Um, also joining us, Amber Athey. She is a really active and effective voice in the conservative world right now. And she is also the Washington editor of The Spectator and the host of Unfit to Print at WCBM. Let's get into it. Come on in, panel. Amber Hogan, good to see you both. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks for having us. All right. Appreciate so we uh, I want to start with the primaries. Let me just ask this because I, I want to talk to you about impeachment and spending and that. But where do you think the state of the race is as we get ready for the second debate next week? Hogan, I'll start with you. 
Well, look, Sean, I think you and I have done a lot of these over the years, uh, and I've never seen anything like this in my life, to have a front runner that's so far ahead in large part because he's running on things he's actually accomplished as president, as a governor, not as a senator, or promises he would do uh, if he got elected to the White House. He can say, I did them once, I can do them again. And his lead continues to expand. And there was a time there after those midterms where it kind of got closer, a little dicey. 15, 20 point range, 10 points. And then next thing you know, it went, started going back out. And, and Donald Trump's still ahead uh, by 40, 50, 60 points in some polls. And yeah, some people are like, no, these polls wouldn't be accurate in states, blah, blah, blah. But they're not 40 or 50 points wrong. Right. So it has been a shocking thing for me to witness someone just kind of take hold, a stranglehold of the of the field and say, no, you're coming with me. I've done this before. I'll do it again. And while everyone else is running in that I'm Trump's policies without his personality lane. I would argue it's his personality that got the policies. And so a lot of people look at that and go, with all these investigations into American citizens and the weaponizations of three-letter agencies, we need somebody to go in there and throw some elbows. And we know Donald Trump did it once, and now he knows where the bodies are buried. So send him back and let him do it again. Amber? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I don't see any major shakeup happening in the primary right now that could possibly significantly cut into that massive lead that the former president has built up. And I think Hogan hit on something important there, which is as much as people say that they don't like Trump's personality, I'm not sure how true that is. Because (laughs) actually, when you talk to, I mean, especially people who support him, They'll say, well, I could do without the tweets. But then when they see the latest tweet and it's something hilarious or they watch these moments of him, you know, on the tarmac reacting live to RBG's death and he takes the pause to collect himself, those types of things they actually really love. They kind of like the uh, the showmanship of the presidency that that he had. Um, so I think the personality does matter. And, and the personality is part of that fighter persona that they really liked, too. And when they see these indictments, as Hogan said, right, this is something that resonates with them because now under the Biden DOJ, you're seeing them actually turn their sights on everyday Americans. You're seeing them turn their sights on pro-life activists, on school board parents, on people who are doing nothing but uh, talking about right-wing politics online. And then the FBI jumps in and tries to manufacture a plot to kidnap the Michigan governor. So they see what's happening to Trump and they see what's happening to the average American and they're able to put two and two together and say, oh, my gosh, that that could happen to me. So yeah. let me ask you, I, I get this. I, and Hogan, I'm sure you get it as a former Trump guy. Uh, Amber, you, um, I, I'll be interested in what your take is, too, obviously. But um, I, I get asked almost extensively, like, will Trump debate? Should he debate? I've said it very clearly. I mean, he's so far ahead that it doesn't make political sense. You can want him to debate. I think it would be entertaining to Amber's point. He's a great showman. I think that he would have like 18 lines that would have us rolling. Um, but I don't know why from a strategic standpoint, it doesn't make sense. And the only caveat that I've made is, as we get closer to say Iowa, if it had gotten down to one or two people and they were growing their lead, uh, I could see a case to say, hey, give people something to, to look at before Iowa. Barring that, if you're still 40, 50 points up, like Hogan was noting, why would you do? Why would you show up? Hogan, do you agree? Disagree? I, I'm in. I mean, look, I, I don't work for any of these candidates right now. Obviously, I don't work for Trump. Uh, but personally, I love debate night when you're not on a campaign. When you're yeah. on a campaign, it's the worst night uh, <laughs> ever, other, other than election night, because you're always having to react in real time and get all these things ready and prepare and all this, um, and then go into the spin room and the whole thing. Uh, but as a consultant, 
it would be a dereliction of duty for me to go to a person who's up 40, 50, 60 points and say, I think it'd be a good idea for you to go onto a debate stage where every single person up there wants your job and they're going to try and attack you to get to the position you're in. Now, look, there's a big rung on this ladder here to get all the way to the top where Trump is. And you can't just jump five or six or 10 or 50 rungs to get there. you got to climb over each person that's kind of where you are to, for it to happen. But make no mistake, they go after Trump and they do it hard. At least some of them would. And we know Chris Christie's one of those folks, for example. It would be political malfeasance for me to say, hey, go up on that debate stage. I think he's doing the right thing from a strategic standpoint. Amber? I completely agree. I mean, there's no reason that he should be debating right now from a strategic standpoint. It doesn't do him any favors. The only thing that could happen is he gets on that stage and the other candidates gang up on him and manage to get enough shots in that maybe they pull him down by a few percentage points. And that's not a big deal in the long run, considering how much of a lead he has. But why would you subject yourself to that? And, um, you know, it's it's what like what you said, Sean. I want to see him debate. I'd love for him to be on that stage. Yeah. But from a political strategy standpoint, it doesn't really make any sense. And I also think that the moment he does decide to debate, if he ever does throughout this primary process, that is going to indicate weakness because that's going to indicate that he's scared of the other candidates and he feels like he has to debate because his lead is potentially shrinking. And you know that's exactly the narrative that would be run with by the media as soon as he decided to participate. So I think it's smart, especially what he's doing in this uh, next iteration. He's going to give a speech in Detroit uh, uh, you know, during this historic UAW strike, trying to speak to that labor coalition that he broke through in yep. 2016. That's the smart play here, no question. Brilliant, too, by the way. Brilliant move for him to do that. I mean, to talking right to the people and not getting bogged down with all the nonsense, going to that base, the people that are supposed to be in Joe Biden's corner. Yeah. You know, they were promised all of these great policies from Joe Biden, and this EV nonsense is crippling that industry. They're ripe for the picking, and it's good for him to do it. So let me ask you a question. You, you, Kogan, you brought up the UAW, or I'm sorry, Amber, you brought up the UAW speech. He did Tucker last time. He did the UAW. Let's just say, hypothetically, tomorrow the UAW strike gets solved. So we take that off the table and he calls each of you and he says, Hogan, it's the president. Uh, kidding. That was a bad one. And that's um, a great. And, and he <laughs> says, OK, they, they what else? I did Tucker last time. I was going to do the speech. Um, the, the strike is solved. What should I do? What what else would you or maybe the third the third debate? What else could he do? Because I think, you're, you know, he's been such a master at. Sort of sucking the oxygen out of the room. What 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 else is on the table, you think? Well, right now, I think even if it gets solved, it's still worth him going there because those people feel like they're on shaky ground because the environmentalists, the radical Green New Deal stuff isn't going to stop. It's going to get more invasive, right. uh, more rules, more laws, more regulations, uh, more cries to stop the internal combustion engine, which, by the way, would destroy the world's economy our economy and cripple the poor. But that's neither here nor there. They don't care about that. It's all about political power and virtue signaling, of course. So for him, I would tell him absolutely go in there. And but, 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 OK, so I, I'm sorry. My question, I agree with everything you said. But what what what's the next what's the next thing you do? You mean like if during the next debate? Yeah. Well, he's such a showman and I, this is such a him move. The counter program he decides to do, I think, will always gain eyeballs. Giving a speech like this, 
not just to UAW, but some of the manufacturing groups, for example, would be a good idea going in and having a, a, an African-American uh, some type of speech to those groups as well to talk about the policies he put in place that improve their lives. I think anything like that, he's going to suck the oxygen out of the room, even if he's not in it, yeah. as long as he's public facing at that same time. So there are a lot of things he could do. I'd like to see him go and talk to maybe suburban moms and talk about That'd what's going on in the schools, right? I mean, that's sort of an issue that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been really trying to tackle. And I think that kind of that movement became really popular towards the end of Trump's presidency. So he didn't really get to address it while he was in office. So maybe that's a policy uh, plan that the public is kind of missing from him. And of course, there's always all of this consternation about how if Trump is the nominee, he'll end up losing the suburban women vote again. So I think that would be really smart. And I just want to jump on this UAW thing again, because uh, Hogan mentioned, you know, this is not going away, even if they do resolve the strike. That's really important because when Trump released his statement on this a couple of days ago, where he talked about how the union leadership is selling these workers down the river, and then you compare that to Biden, who's saying, well, I stand on the side of the workers. I think they should get a fair deal. Yeah. They're both technically right. But Trump is actually 10 steps ahead here, because <laughs> right. if these union workers settle this strike and they end up getting a 30 percent pay increase over the next four years, the problems with this electric vehicle mandate are only going to get worse because the companies are now going to have an even smaller uh, profit margin because they're paying their workers more. They're losing money on every electric vehicle that they manufacture takes fewer workers to put together an electric vehicle. And the most expensive parts, the batteries, are made overseas. Yes. So Trump is really smart to focus on this right now. This is only going to get worse as these companies start feeling the pressure once they start uh, moving past this strike and giving these workers more money and greater benefits. Yeah, I, I actually... Go ahead, Kogan. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think you're right. I mean, the thing is, Biden first said there wasn't even a problem. Now he's saying he's standing with them. Trump's actually solving the problem and saying, yeah. hey... Right. I want to make sure that there are gas combustible, I mean, cars that can actually, that you can build. Biden might side with them, but at the end of the day, his policy is screwing them. Right, yeah, like paying your workers more doesn't mean anything if the entire industry is going to go bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's a great point. Um, and you know, there was a, um, uh, I remember, remember the, the, the snowstorm or ice storm last year where everyone was just stuck on 95 for like a long yeah. time? I still think a great ad would be, Sean, and Amber, you tell me if I'm wrong here because I'm, I'm using my political campaigning idea here. It would be so good to like have this drone footage of all of that. People huddled up and all this and the whip, the wind whipping would be like the audio track. Just black screen would say like, imagine if all these cars were electric. Mm. I mean, they'd all be dead out there because combustion engines can handle the cold and the batteries can't. I mean, look. No question that Ralph Northam should have at least gone up and down the highway and given out some of his white sheets he has just to keep people warm out on the highway. <laughs> but since he wouldn't do that, at the least we could have the warmth of the cars of an internal combustion engine. But, you know, no the, the, the funny thing is you bring up a great point. You just saw these, you know, these two hurricanes go up the East Coast and there are warnings about electric vehicles if they get flooded. I mean, you know, Trump is at least making sure that we have a, a some sense of reality and backup if you know you, you start getting everything wiped out during some of this some of these weather uh issues you know you're gonna have to build a lot more electric cars because they're gonna get destroyed um one last question on the debates before i move on who is somebody as we get ready for this next debate who is somebody that you 
are going to keep your eye on just out of curiosity based on the first debate that you think is worth watching? I'm going to be looking at Tim Scott because I think he really held back in the first debate. I disagree with him on a lot of his policies, particularly on criminal justice reform, but he has an incredible story to tell. And I don't think he did a really adequate job of conveying that during the first debate because he was so low energy. But based on people I've been talking to around his campaign, they're really looking to shift toward a more aggressive strategy. And I'm really hoping that that comes out on the debate stage. Hogan. Yeah, I mean, what an uplifting message he has, too. I'm from South Carolina, so he was my senator, but from cotton to Congress and a general, I mean, just great message. He needs to be a little more forceful and a little more strong. I'm also paying attention to Nikki, not just because he was the governor of South Carolina uh, and I know her, but because a lot of people were kicking those tires. And I'm going to be interested to see what happens, because remember, the last debate, we thought everyone was going to go after DeSantis. They didn't. They went after right. Vivek. In large measure, I think, because the internal polling showed what we all saw was that Vivek bump was real. So they thought, let's kill it in the crib here. Let's prevent this from happening. Um, so I look for him to, to, to figure out some, some interesting ground. I do look for DeSantis to face some incoming in this one because they're trying to, as I mentioned, climb that ladder. And they've got to go rung by rung. And DeSantis is still in second place, albeit by not much. But Nikki's gaining a lot of traction and momentum. So I, I'm interested to see what she does and how she uses it. Because real quickly, you know, debates are about creating moments, then building that into momentum and ultimately a movement. Remember, Kamala Harris on a debate stage famously called Joe Biden a sex criminal and a segregationist. And she couldn't capitalize on that, even though she had T-shirts ready. Right. So, you know, can you make it happen after that? I don't know. We'll see. I, Hogan, I do want to just ask you, as you brought up, I forgot you were from South Carolina. Um, but I want to ask you just real quickly. I have a belief that both only one candidate between Haley and Scott will make it to South Carolina. And then if either of them doesn't place a strong second, that they're both done. Tell me, do you, do you agree with that? Or what's your take on how South Carolina plays out in this process for those two candidates specifically? Early on, I would have said Tim Scott would have won the state over Nikki. Be, not, not ultimately, I think Trump wins the state. But Tim Scott would have finished second or third because he had an apparatus in place. His name was still top of mind. He just ran an election. Nikki's been gone for a long time. She didn't leave on the best of terms. Some people didn't like her all that much. The legislature doesn't like her. That's a badge of honor for many. So I don't know how that plays. But right now, I think Nikki stands um, the best chance of winning the state based on where the polls are. But do you think they both well, make it? I, I think what I think is Nikki would do it when it came to even if she knows she's going to lose to say, I'm for the people. Say, I'm, I'm going to put on I'll put up the good fight. She'd stay in it. I don't think Tim would stay in it if he's that far down yeah. in the polls. Amber, let me ask you this. Um, how do you think Republicans are doing when it comes to messaging the impeachment inquiry? Not great. <laughs> um, I, I just don't feel like they've really conveyed directly to America what the collective evidence is that's caused them to go this direction. And then, of course, Speaker McCarthy has this issue with the perceived hypocrisy of telling Nancy Pelosi that she needed to get a full vote from the House, but then going ahead and unilaterally launching his own impeachment inquiry. Now, to be fair, his response to that was sort of like the Mitch McConnell to Harry Reid response, which was, hey, you set the precedent, so now I'm going to follow it. And I'm totally fine with that. I have no issue given the left's overreach. Um, but I mean, that's the perception. And he had a really good moment with a reporter where he did sort of push her back on her heels as he listed out all of the, the you know, pieces of circumstantial evidence that Republicans had more 
questions about. And I support the impeachment inquiry, but I just don't think it's breaking through. And, and part of that is, of course, the media's uh, completely in bed with the Democrats. There's no um, evidence. But that's always the case, right? Republicans always have to do, uh, you know, exponentially uh, better yes. messaging in order for their points to get through. So, Hogan, the thing is, I agree with everything that Amber said. Like, I, I've made this case. We've had Jim Jordan on the uh, on the on the program. We've had um, Keith Self, the Congressman. Like, I'm like, guys, hold up a piece of paper and say, here's the bank records. Here's Joe Biden. Here's Hunter. Like, if you cannot explain it like that, people aren't going to buy into it. And we, I get it. We keep hearing about the SARS form. But if you want me to decide whether I think he's guilty or not, you can't just tell me you have evidence. You need to show it to me, right? This is like a jury. So what, what, what do you think they need to do? And do you agree with that? Because I get it. There is a lot of evidence, but it's like evidence versus conviction. Yeah. Um, I disagree slightly in, in this way because uh, Amber's right. What we're up against, obviously, the bar for us is way higher than, than, than their bar for anything as it relates to media. From June 8th to July 18th, the mainstream media, the legacy media covered the, the Donald Trump indictment for 527 minutes. From that same time period, Hunter and Joe Biden, June 8th to July 18th, zero minutes. So if a tree falls in a forest, people hear it. Here's how I think they shift the narrative. I think what they need to do is take the show on the road. I think they need to go local. I think they need to go into the districts where you have fence sitters. You have Ken Bucks, for example, and you go to his people and you say, here's the evidence, guys. Here's what we see. And the it's difficult to fight back when a media writ large uses the term no evidence. Right. When there's tons of it everywhere. And this whole idea that it's circumstantial. If I walk into a room with a bloody shirt and I have a handgun in my hand, bloody fingerprints all over it, my hand's bloody. You didn't see me do anything, but that's circumstantial. That's right. And right. I'm telling you, the Biden's hands are bloody here. And I would argue it's not going to be just a political problem in the end. I think it's going to be a legal problem if the Republicans play their cards right. You know, it's interesting, Amber, because to Hogan's point, the Republicans, the best messaging they had in the last two years is when they went to the border, they brought the show down there and they said, here's what's happening. And the media was forced to cover it. I agree with Hogan. Bring this do You've got to mix it up. You can't just do a couple interviews on Fox and think that right. everyone gets it. Exactly. It's been like the James Comer show all over Fox News for the past three months. And, you know, he goes on there and he makes his case well, but you're not really capturing the people that you need to capture. The people who are watching Fox already know that the Bidens are corrupt, right? And the other problem is that so much of this gets mired in the questions about Hunter Biden's drug use and his stuff with the prostitution. And people tend to lump all of that sort of salacious behavior together with the corruption allegations. And the corruption allegations maybe are not as sexy, for lack of a better term. I don't think anything Hunter Biden does is sexy, but... <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not as as uh, uh, capturing to the viewer. I would love to see um, a sort of what you what you were saying, Sean, with laying out the bank records. Like I want to see the web of the different offshore bank accounts and the shell companies and where the money is flowing through. Give me an infographic. Give me the it's always sunny conspiracy board. Like that's what I want to see. I, I really like to see the visuals here. Visuals are always uh, a yeah. communicator's best friend. We, we need to put it into a Venn diagram on the side of a school bus, and that way Kamala Harris would have to talk about it. Right, she loves the, the yellow school bus. Diagram the school bus. <laughs> but see, this is the thing. Like, as a guy that is, a, like, I watch every episode of, like, Law & Order, Law & Order SVU, Law & Order Criminal Intent, and they always, you know, it's like, here's the case, and they make it, and everyone at the end says, okay, 
we, you know, this is why we are going to convict you or find you guilty. I, I, I think Republicans need to get out there and whether it's on the side of a school bus or on a billboard, make the case to the American people that this is why Hunter's just, yeah, we all get it. He's a bad dude um, that has done some nefarious stuff, shady stuff, illegal stuff. But you have to show that Biden, the, the yeah. president was complicit. Yeah. 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 And and I think as well, the Republicans kind of back themselves into a corner here because they did what I thought originally was actually a good strategy was they sort of went with the drip, drip, drip method, right? They released little by little. And it was like every day there was a new piece of evidence that they were uncovering about the Bidens and sharing with the public, at least verbally, not, uh, not visually. And that made it so a lot of people couldn't really ignore it because the media would say, oh, no evidence. Then the Republicans will come out the next day and say, well, here's another piece. We've got it right here. But at some point, you have to go back and thread it all together, right? You have to go back and start from the beginning and list them all out, put them into a clear picture so that people can can see the whole thing together as opposed to expecting everybody to follow a two-month drip, drip, drip. Great. So- let me ask you this. If you had to look in a crystal ball, where do you think this thing ends up? Do you think that the House actually votes? And and what I worry about more than anything else is do do these holdout members actually support it? Hogan? I, I don't know if they're going to support it, but I think the pressure is going to mount. If but they don't actually... you wait. Hold on. If they don't, isn't that a huge failure? If you got if, oh, if the House... Oh, yeah, absolutely. They need to support it. Uh, and, and McCarthy needs to make sure this proceeds forward. Otherwise, it's going to land as though nothing happened. Right. That Hunter and Joe were not in business together when everyone knows the evidence is overwhelming that they were. So the story's changed from the White House. Everyone's seen this. It comes out the drip drip, as, as Amber just pointed out. But um, you're not going to find a check that says to Hunter and Joe Biden for bribery and other schemes signed Burisma. You're just not. But you, think you will it was see money flowing into these bank accounts. That's what they need to focus on. You're right about that, Amber. And the more they do that, the better off we'll be because this is a Hunter Biden. Yeah, they didn't do the Joe check. Biden. They did Venmo. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they did. Ven- the private. It was a private Venmo, so they couldn't say right. it, right? But the problem uh, is, yeah. you know, they're going to get screwed because under the Biden administration, you got to pay taxes on anything over six grand now. So they... they- <laughs> well, and I would say, hey, you need to stop with off the table for this cycle is white privilege, uh, gun control, and paying your fair share in taxes. The left has no leg to stand on now on any of those issues. I couldn't believe this. I, I, I noted this on Monday's show. John Carl from ABC News, who is the Biden spokesman, third string host of ABC, uh, was like, well, no one gets charged with these. I mean, and he was, he was, it was only, the gun was only taken away from him because his sister-in-law was trying to help. She took it away from him, threw it in a trash can by a school and he by lied a on a gun form, which is yeah. something that Democrats and which is the media support stronger and stricter background. And I'm like, what is going on? And by the way, Sean, isn't it conservatives who support the second amendment who are saying, can we please just prosecute the gun crimes that we already have before trying to pass new legislation. And then you have the perfect example of why that case is 100 percent true, because the president's own son is expecting to get this special treatment, this sweetheart deal, have the crime waved away because it's not considered serious enough. And yet when mass shooters happen, the left goes, we need to pass new laws. 
How about making sure that these gun databases are actually checked across state lines, that the FBI is following up on tips and that we're prosecuting people who lie on their background checks? Crazy. Kind of what the Democrats say. I want to ask you guys one off topic question before we go. Elon uh, Musk, and I asked this to Steve Krakauer earlier in the show. Elon Musk is saying that the future of Twitter, now X, is that everybody's going to have to pay. If he makes everyone pay, A, will you pay? And B, what do you think the future of Twitter is? I want to keep this rather tight. So, Amber, I'll start with you. I don't think I will pay. I haven't paid yet. And honestly, over the past year or so, I've actually muted notifications from Twitter and removed it off of the home screen of my phone. And I'm a mentally much happier person for doing that. Um, so regardless of the work aspect or getting or news gathering, I, I just don't see myself going back to that level of addiction that I was at before. Can I ask you one, so, before I get, Ho before Hogan weighs yeah. in, are you getting it from somewhere else? Like that dopamine hit? Are you getting it from, I mean, threads or getter or truth social or is it just I'm actually a I'm a huge reddit person. I love reddit because you can actually read longer threads so it's not just 140 words thrown at you peak content after content. You actually have to take time to read these various, yeah. you know, forums and and blogs. So I think it's it's a little bit better for me, probably not by much, but it's also less political, which I think is is good. Okay, Hogan 92% of the traffic on Twitter is done by like 12% of the users. I wouldn't pay for it. I wouldn't use it. I'd get it somewhere else. Okay. All right. This is fascinating. Something to talk about over the weekend. Um, all right, guys. Uh, thank you both for joining us. I appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Thanks much. Sean. You bet. All right. As we get ready for the weekend, Friday Eve here, I really enjoyed both of those conversations because Steve Krakauer really gave us some great perspective on what's happening in the media. And as I said during the intro of him, you know, he's he's worked at these places. He knows what's going on in the inside. And uh, and that's great. And what his reaction to how CNN in particular is covering this stuff, I thought was particularly uh, helpful to, to hear. Uh, I thought it was also great to hear the two perspectives that Amber and Hogan brought to the panel. Because you guys have heard me talk to these members of Congress, Jim Jordan and others, um, about Seb Gorka and I talked about it at the beginning of the week. If we don't do a better job of messaging this impeachment thing, it's not going to work. Just won't. And I think that understanding that selling this to the average American is important, showing them like it's an episode of Law and Order, that here's the evidence, here's why he should be convicted, is important. Jim Jordan said it earlier in the week that this is part of the process making sure that the American people understand what's happening and that we put future politicians on notice is, I think, important. So uh, I thought it was a great discussion. I'm always interested in what you have to say. As you know, I've told you before, I'm part of the Locals organization, seanspicer.locals.com. You can go there, talk to me, feedback, uh, advice, ideas, thoughts. Uh, so please do that. Tomorrow, we're going to sit down with Andy Puzner. He was the former um, nominee for the Labor Department for Trump. And he ran CK restaurants, which is Hardee's and Carl's Jr., all that kind of stuff. So we'll sit down with him, talk to him about the economy, what the Biden administration is doing. If you haven't already, please continue to support the show by subscribing and hitting that notification button on YouTube, Rumble, Apple Podcasts in particular. And if you can, leave a five-star recommendation. Always appreciate it. See you right back here tomorrow on The Sean Spicer Show. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.